1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Dr. Oka Anjaria, who is the director of the Mandel Center for the Humanities at Brandeis and an English professor. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I am so glad that you're here and we get to talk about your role at Brandeis and the exciting things that have been going on there with the Connected PhD. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself?
0: Sure. Um, I am a, as you said, a professor of English and South Asian studies at Brandeis University. I've been there since 2007. And um, I just started directing the Mandel Center for the Humanities. Uh, This is my second year. Um, And my research expertise is on Indian literature and film. I have uh, published two books on Indian literature and uh, two years ago just published a book on Bollywood Indian cinema.
1: One thing I'd like to ask my guests is, how did you know about the job to become a professor? What led you on that path? Who advised you? How did you find out about it? So the the landscape of uh,
0: of, gra- of jobs, professorial jobs, was it's been bad for many decades, but it was definitely better when I was in college and graduate school. Uh, the first major kind of crisis was two thousand eight, uh, which was of course the the economic crisis, which was the year after I got the job. So I was lucky in that way that I was able to um, get this wonderful job. And I came through a pretty traditional path. Um, I love teaching. I love um, and I love kind of not just teaching, but I like putting together syllabi. I like telling stories through syllabi. Uh, And I was drawn to Indian literature pretty early on Uh, by the end of college. It was something that, you know, not many people had been writing about in the US Academy, especially more kind of contemporary Indian literature, Indian literature and English. These were topics that were not really written about that well. If you were an Indologist, um, for many, you know, centuries, if you were an Indologist, you would study the ancient Indian languages, you'd study Sanskrit, you'd study Urdu-Persian. Uh, but the idea that there was something valuable in modern Indian literature uh, was something that was still kind of relatively new when I started. Um, and it's happily growing. Uh, and now we have a, a very robust field of modern Indian literary studies. But I think I just there were things I wanted to say about this whole body of literature that seemed to be ignored in the U.S. Um, and so the idea of writing books on this topic, teaching this topic, was very exciting to me. Uh, so I was, you know, extremely excited about being in a university. And like I said, I was lucky that I was kind of came through in a moment where there were more opportunities than there are now.
1: Randice has had a program for about four years called the Connected PhD, which was uh in part made possible by this funding from Mellon. And it's really allowed and encouraged all of you to reconsider how a PhD is imagined and delivered, what the students need, and how you can better meet those needs. How did you become involved in that? So, yeah, the Connected PhD
0: is a fantastic program. I became involved in it because I became Director of Graduate Studies, which we call DGS, in the English department um, four years ago. right at the kind of start of Connected PhD. So becoming director of graduate studies is a pretty standard job that everyone, every kind of senior professor goes through in their department. But uh, I kind of went into it with the sense of like, let me learn more about graduate education. Let me learn more about what our students are experiencing. And at this point, I really didn't know much about graduate education or some of of the kind of crisis it's in. So I kind of just set myself the task of talking to every single student in the department. I met with every single student in the department to hear about their needs, what they were going through. Finan- that includes intellectual needs, but also financial needs as well, which is important. And uh, through that, I began to realize that we are really, and it, this is not just my department, but we as a kind of a university and an institution of higher education professionals are really not serving our students Um in the way in the best ways that we can i didn't realize how much financial precarity students were under even though our PhD is what we call fully funded, um, which means that for five years, the student get a stipend. For the last several years, that stipend has been $25,000 a year. Um, and living in Boston, in the Boston area, you can imagine how difficult it is to get by on that amount. Um, but also there's a you know a crisis in terms of the fact that there were just fewer jobs available to people. So I saw, I met with students at the end of their programs, their degree programs who were just struggling. They would do interview after interview and just were not getting academic jobs and then finding that there's a lot of feelings of uh, shame and failure, which is not fair because these were excellent students doing all the right things. So it was kind of learning from the students about what their needs were that, um, that made me realize that I wanted to be part of this larger conversation on um. On graduate education reform, uh, so the connected PhD was is has two parts to it. One, it it funds students who want to try on different a uh, career, uh, who want to get different. Uh, experience in different career training while they're in graduate school. And the other thing that Connected PhD is, is fund or give stipends to faculty who want to kind of make changes in their department. And so uh, I was, you know, it's a a wonderful program, Um, I was able to encourage many of our students to. to join, to to apply for connected PhD funds, to do things that otherwise they might have had to wait to do until after their degree programs were over, by which point it's often too late to get meaningful career uh, experience. And then I was able to use some of those funds to make, um, to work on a project to make pretty substantial changes in the English PhD, which I'm happy to talk about more.
1: I do want to hear more about that. I, I have a follow-up question about the student interviews though. Sure. How did you, How did you go about that? Um, often professors want to know more about their students, um, but they feel that they don't have time or they feel that students don't come to office hours or they feel that students are guarding, you know, personal information for a lot of very valid reasons. How did you conduct interviews in a way that encouraged them to show up for the interview and to feel they could be open with you? That's absolutely
0: true. Uh, professors don't have time. There is, we do get some uh, uh, small course compensation for being DGS, uh, which I, you know, I, I took seriously. I said, okay, if I'm, not, I'm teaching one lesson, one fewer course for uh for as being DGS, I'm gonna use that time to kind of meet with students. They don't students don't come to office hours. Overall, there's a general sense of students feel um, like they are left on their own, especially after they finish the first two years of classes in a PhD program. They feel like they're left alone. I certainly did not just open office hours and say please come. I don't think that's a good way of interacting with students. Um, I, I individually reached out. We don't have a huge program, so maybe this would be less possible at other places. Uh, but we had, you know, about, I think it was 25, 30 students. Um, I reached out individually to them. And the other thing, which you're absolutely right in saying, is that students won't open up unless they feel like they trust you. So a lot of this was long term. I was, I was DGS for three years, and it was a lot about establishing trust, um, which means that making, that basically convincing students. And, you know, but convincing students that I was their ally, but that doesn't mean just telling them I am your ally. It means listening to what they have to say, what their needs are, helping them on what their needs are. So as I said, many of the advanced students were working on job applications and, us. Uh, you know, and, and needed help with the job applications. Um, that wasn't exactly what I, with, I'm talking about academic job applications. That wasn't exactly what the connected PhD wants us to do, but I took the, t- I took time with um, many of the students to actually just read through their job materials Um without kind of bringing in my agenda on it. So I wanted to meet every student where they're at um, and learn about where they're at and help them along the way. Some students were having trouble um, finishing their dissertations, even though they'd been in the program for a while because they felt like um, they were nervous about it not being good enough or they were nervous about um, what's going to happen to them after graduation. So even though those weren't technically my students in the sense that I wasn't on their dissertation committee, I um, w- spent you know many long conversations with them just trying to hear what their needs were, where they're at, and actually helping them through immediate moments of crisis rather than just trying to... Uh, advance my own agenda or interests, And what that did over the three years was generate, I, I hope, I mean, what I felt like it generated trust between me and the students. And then we could have conversations about some of the things that I wanted to talk about.
1: How did the things that they share with you change the English PhD program for the better? So, um, yeah, well, we got, so one of it was talking to students
0: and realizing um, some of the things that the students really were missing. Um, and so I'll give you a couple of examples of that. Um, the the general way that we structure our PhDs is that students take classes for one to two years, depending on whether they have a master's degree beforehand. And then in their third year, they're supposed to study for their field exam, um, which is, the deadline was that they had to take that by October of their fourth year. So in talking to students, and then they had to do their dissertation prospectus within six months of that that field exam, And so you can start to see in a program where we're, like I said, quote, unquote, fully funded. In other words, we fund students with a stipend and tuition remission for five years. You can see what, what started to happen was that they would take the two years of classes. They would study for their field exam in the third year. But really not get much support in that studying. They would take the field exam in the last possible moment, which is October of their fourth year. And then they would write their dissertation prospectus in April of their fourth year. Now, suddenly four years of the program have gone by and they have not, you know, and they just have a dissertation prospectus, let alone the entire dissertation. And so you can see how, that's why I keep putting fully funded in quotes. We were funding students for five years, but we weren't Helping them actually finish in five years. So um, one of the major, I mean, we have we made some, like I said, major substantial changes in the English PhD, and one of them was thinking of ways as a department to support students in um, in getting that dissertation prospectus done much earlier. Um, and so one of the things we did, a concrete thing we did, is now we've instituted a pro seminar, field exam pro seminar that every student will be required to take in their third year, which is a, which is a pro seminar where the cohort comes together and we and whoever the 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 professor of that pro seminar is is helping everyone kind of get through so they can finish the dissertation by may um, rather than october and we can see how that suddenly adds a whole six months to how much time you have to write your dissertation so that was one thing talking to the students about not kind of being supported after classes classwork was over um another thing we did is we talked to um many alumni, especially recent alumni who had graduated from the program. And recent alumni have a range of wonderful jobs, um, some of which are in professor jobs, but certainly not the majority. Um, And what was happening structurally, and again, this is not the fault of my department alone, but I think a real structural problem within the higher education universe is that Alumni who don't get professor jobs often get kind of ignored. And if you look at alumni pages, alumni successes pages of people in a range of departments, the, often the only people who are mentioned there are, prof, are people who have professor jobs. And so what those alumni, the majority of the alumni who have, uh, or, like I said, a range of amazing jobs and are doing amazing things, but just aren't feeling recognized and seen by the departments they graduate from because they weren't, they didn't have the kind of coveted professor jobs. And again, that's for a lot of reasons. Certainly not because, you know, first of all, the job crisis, but also because people have different interests and want to do different things with their PhDs. So um, myself and a colleague, we uh, we did uh, interviews with recent alumni. and we did, including those who had professor jobs and those who didn't, and kind of asked them what, what could be done in the program to help better support the careers that they ended up taking. And they had a lot of wonderful advice. Um, one thought is, um, which we have since instituted, is a, um, a required internship now that students have to do. As you know, many graduate students TA become TAs um, as part of their funding package for the five years. Um, and, we were, and TA-ship is great. You get experience in the classroom. You get experience hearing another professor you know, teach, but the thing about TA ships is there's a kind of diminishing returns. It's really, really useful the first couple of times you do it. And then when you'd have to do it every semester and you have to do it for many times, it really, um, it stops giving you more skills, you know, it kind of just confirms the skills you by that time already have. So in our department, we voted to switch out one of the required TA ships with a, a required internship. And the internship is a great program where basically we are funding students, just like we did a TA ship instead of working 10 hours a week as a TA you now have to work 10 hours a week at a at, um, an internship at another a kind of the in the kind of position you might see yourself as wanting to get after graduation so we've had amazing we started this a few years ago we've had um, students working in at presses um, and we've had students working and um, carceral reform um, contacts we've had students uh, what else? Oh, we've had students be translators for, um, you know, presses abroad, where they can think about what it means to translate. So we've had um, we've had really interesting work that students are doing in the um, in the internship, and that is a and that was one of the things our alumni told us, like we want more kind of training. In a diversity of careers, especially kind of training that builds skills um, during the PhD, because what was happening is that people would have to go outside of the PhD to get this kind of training, which is um, very difficult. And often these internships don't pay, uh, so you're you know you suddenly have to do work without getting paid in already a situation of financial precarity that was really um, that people basically weren't able to do. And so they finished the PhD, wanting to do something else, and really didn't have a skill set. Um, or work experience that would allow them to do that. So now we've kind of built that in. And another thing we did um, inspired by alumni was to, we give students the option to have one of their courses towards the PhD be a what we call a transferable skills course, which means they can take a data analysis course, they can take a UX course, um, and basically something else that is building a skill set um, that that is su- supplements what we do in the PhD traditionally, but gives them the chance to actually count that course towards a PhD. So it, again, it doesn't feel like extra work, which no one has time for. And these these are, I think, I'm hoping these are concrete things that students can then use to be m- much better prepared for a huge diversity of careers beyond the academy, including academic jobs because as um, as we see academic jobs more and more are asking for people to have um, to ha- applicants to have a diverse, set of skills. Not only are you an expert in Victorian studies or post-colonial studies, but you can lead a new program. You can help, um, you know, with the digital humanities, developing a digital humanities platform. These are all things that employers in all fields, including academics, are now looking for.
1: One of the changes that you wanted to make was to make sure students could finish in five years. Have you found that that is that's what's happening
0: now? So we're still at the early kind of rollout of the program. And so technically the new structure of it um, is really we're, we're in the first year of the people entering now. So we haven't, we don't have enough data to look at that, um, but I am I would say I'm, I'm confident um, because of some of the strict structures we've put in place. Um, one is, as I said, the kind of field exam pro seminar. And the other thing we've done um, is reformed or we've expanded our idea of what counts as a PhD dissertation. We now call it a doctoral project and we want to give people more leeway. This is another thing we heard from alumni too. Uh, we want to give people more leeway to write a dissertation or a doctoral project that's going to kind of help them in the kind of job they're gonna get so we heard from an alum who works for a Writing Center and they said it would be really helpful to have um, have had some pedagogical pieces in the dissertation which then can become publications at working in the writing program which is different than kind of literary criticism so um, so I, I'm I can't say with fact that people are now going to only graduate in five years, but I, what I can see is a change in mentality among the graduate students. I feel a lot of excitement. A lot of people come in now and they say, okay, I understand what needs to be done in five years. I have a plan for what I can do when, and I want to finish in five years. And people are excited to move through the program in that way. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm hoping that the data, um, when, when, you know, when we'll probably need a few We'll probably need five or six years to really see how this works, but I'm feeling pretty confident about it already because of the change in mentality of our current students.
1: Were there things from your own graduate experience that helped you in imagining what you might do differently? in my own graduate experience, I had a, came from a much more, I came from both a traditional graduate
0: program and not. Um, I went to the, uh, I got my PhD from a a program called modern thought and literature at Stanford university. Um, and so Stanford itself is a kind of traditional institution, but the modern thought and literature program was a little bit, um, kind of different. It's what, you know, it wasn't the English department, wasn't the history department. It was kind of this in-between program that, um, that, uh, you know, it doesn't even have its own faculty. So like the faculty chair and the faculty members are all people from other programs. So, um, So I definitely got a traditional experience in terms of it was expected that I would write a proto monograph dissertation and get an academic job. And there really wasn't a lot of leeway to think about different careers at that point. There might well be now. Um, But what was untraditional and did help me was because there was no dedicated faculty in my Ph.D. program. I didn't have a kind of department there. I had to go kind of seek out. Um, alliances seek out committee members. Um, because of that, I think I I saw the the value of. Um, I mean, I kind of learned the the value of kind of generating your own. You know, kind of timelines and metrics for success for yourself uh, in a way that sometimes when you have an established program, people tell you, okay, now you need to do this, now you need to do this. So I, I, you know, I didn't know the term five year plan when I came in. Now I encourage all graduate students to have, all PhD students to have a a five year plan, but I effectively did have a five year plan for myself. Here's what I want to do when. Um, And so I think in my case, the independence really helped me realize that I need to take my own education education, um, in my own hands. This is not someone else's education. I don't, someone else is not setting down the rules for me. Um, here's what I need to do. So that sense of like really thinking actively about what you want to be doing at every stage and constantly also reassessing. I mean, this is something that happens that I've seen a lot too, not just in my department, but elsewhere. Students come into the program thinking, Oh, I want to be a teacher. I care. I really love English, the study of English. I love reading. Um, And they don't necessarily always know exactly what a PhD is and what you actually do during those five years. So I think it's really helpful to constantly reassess. I tell my current students this at the end of every really semester, but certainly at the end of every year, ask yourself is, did I get fulfillment from what I was doing this year? Um, Did I enjoy it? You know, and a lot of times people really do enjoy the first two years when you're taking classes. And then in the third year, when people are kind of off on their own, suddenly they have to think of this project. Um... I've seen a lot of students who are just like, I didn't quite know this is what the PhD was. Uh, And rather than just sit there and feel like you're stuck in this thing, I think to make active decisions about your own professional life is something that I encourage students to do. And I think it does have an impact not only on student progress, but also on, I think, student well-being, um, because you are taking your own education um, in your own hands and thinking actively at every point about whether this is fulfilling to you and what you want to do next.
1: The PhD has been redesigned to be more student-centered, to change the advising structures, to have the internships. You've redesigned the approach to comps and add more support for that. How have you then changed anything about admissions? Do, Do students now know when they're looking at your program that you have a different approach than some other schools? So again, we've just kind of just rolled out some
0: of this information on our website because it wasn't really official um, until a year ago. Uh, but one concrete thing we did um, for in the admissions, well, for, so first of all, now our website has information about this. So it has information about the Connected PhD and not just about the Connected PhD in general, but what our students have done with Connected PhD internships. Um, we integrate, I spent a lot of time working with our amazing administrators to integrate some of this content into the main web page. So I think there was a tendency before to say like English department webpage and then like extracurricular activity. Here's what people do on the side. And we've taken a lot of um, we've taken a lot of effort, and it's always an ongoing process to to integrate some of that information in the website. So when a student looks at our website, they can say, Oh, this isn't just doing an English degree and an internship on the side. The internship is the English degree. It's all part of the same package. We've also um, added a new question in our admissions uh, statement. So the admissions. Uh, pro- platform is the same as it is everywhere, write the statement of purpose, um, send a writing sample. We've also had an an additional question that asked people to list three careers they'd like to do after graduation. It seems like a simple thing, asking someone what careers they'd like to do, but I think it's actually very important. First of all, it's important to say what three careers do you want to do. A lot of students feel, and they have felt throughout, that if they come to graduate school, come to a PhD and say they don't want to be a professor, then somehow that's a mark against them. And that's very real. And that's because of the biases of faculty, unfortunately, um, that the PhD is really for training professors. And so we're trying to move away from that, asking people um, to, to... to list three careers saying, of course, if you want to say professor, say it, but also two other things you want to do. And, you know, again, I, I, I think it's just been the first year and it's hard or it's been the second year of that. It's sometimes hard for students to navigate. I don't want uh, applicants to feel like we're playing another trick on them, like they have to answer the question correctly for us to let them in. And so we don't, you know, we're not harsh in terms of our evaluation of that question. But I think it really is important for students to realize, wow, this department is thinking about multiple possible careers rather than just a Assuming that the PhD is a pi- pipeline into the professoriate, um, so we, d- you know, the, the answers vary, and a lot of students still say they want to, you know, be a professor, which again is fine. But we've have had students who are, you know, I think, and I think they're empowered by this question to say things like, "I would like to do, be in higher ed admin. I'm getting this PhD so that I could, you know, have more mobility within my um, my context right now. I want to be a high school teacher. I want to work for a nonprofit. And it's really important for students to feel like they can say, they can articulate the multiple things they might want to do with the PhD. I think again, I think it's a, it's a, um, a benefit to, you know, the the program in the sense that students have a goal for afterwards. But I also think it's a benefit to the student themselves to be actively thinking about what they want to do with the PhD, not even from when they get here, but even from when they apply.
1: And there's a huge benefit in creating a culture there on campus and in the departments where these conversations are welcome and you're not concerned that you're going to stop being a professor's protege or having their interest and their attention when you need it because they don't see you as serious. Absolutely. I mean, that has caused it's been really devastating
0: to people. I mean, you know, people that I know where you suddenly feel like you're on the outs because you're not saying the right thing in terms of what you want to do. And this is not just it can't just be done with one person. And I'm happy to say we've genuinely changed the culture of my department. I mean, my department is not unified on everything. We all come from very different places and have very different perspectives. But there's been a significant culture change um, absolutely across the board. Uh, and I don't think there's one professor in my department now, because of all these conversations we've been having for the last, you know, three, four years, I don't think there's one professor in the department now who, so, you know, who would turn against someone if they said they didn't want to be an academic. And I, I feel that's a huge accomplishment.
1: It is. It is. As <laughs> it, it uh, someone who, who went through those kind of feelings as a student, I, I know that it's a huge accomplishment to change a culture to where people can openly consider a lot of different ways forward and have them all be equally valuable. I agree. How has this supported students' sense that they can ask for help? Sorry, can you repeat the question, please? How has this change to the program or the changes going forward? Will it support students' sense that they can ask for help? I certainly hope so. So, um, I mean, I, I
0: certainly hope that students can be because we're having these conversations kind of out in the open and we've stated our priorities as a department. I hope students can ask for help. But it does go back to um, the other thing you mentioned you said about being an advisor's protege. So I think that's another shift that we've made. And I think this is happening throughout Certainly, Brandeis, but it's happening, I think, throughout the country. Is a shift from this advisor protege model. I think that's also been a source of historically um, a source of uh, you know anxiety for students who feel like they need to please this one person. And frankly, and again, this is not at all at Brandeis, but in the country, frankly, a source of kind of potential toxic relationships that are happening as well, where one faculty feels like they're kind of the they're the, yeah, the mentor, the the mentor of, of a set of students in a way that I think is not, is not healthy for the students, certainly, but not for the culture of academia. So some of the things that I think are important shifts to do so that students can ask for help, as you say, one is move away from the advisor-protege model and think about different forms of collective advising. Faculty tend to sometimes worry that collective advising kind of neutralizes faculty expertise, or like you're a Victorianist, how are you going to get advice from a a Renaissance scholar, but I think really moving away from that, that that protege model um, is very healthy. So forms of collective advising means that a student will go has many people to choose from when they Um, ask for help uh, when they need help. And they they don't just have to feel like their advisor is their only recourse. And again, that comes from building trust. So we have, for instance, our department starts the very first semester you're here as a first year PhD student, you are required to enroll in a pro seminar, which is a kind of introduction to the discipline pro seminar. That pro seminar is taught by different faculty every year. And um, the pro seminar, basically, whoever you are, whatever field you're in, you have a faculty member, most likely not in your field, right, because it rotates, um, who is kind of teaching you about the profession and the department. So it includes things like what is an academic conference? How do you apply for an academic conference? How do you, what is an abstract? What is a seminar paper? And also things like career diversity and how to plan for after the PhD. So that model of having a pro seminar taught by by any faculty member already makes a student feel that they have an extra person they can go to besides the advisor they were assigned on field expertise. Similarly, the field exam pro seminar that I mentioned earlier is going to be another faculty. So then in the third year, again, you have another faculty member that you can go to, you know, so um, you can start to see that like who if someone needs help, they have already have three people besides their teachers, you know, people who they feel they can trust. But I also feel like um, collective advising shouldn't stop at the department. It should go beyond the department. So one of the things our new graduate dean has been encouraging is um, writing like dissertation writing seminars um, that are taught by a faculty member, but include students from all departments. Uh, And again, that gives you another person's due. I actually um, got a connected PhD grant with a colleague of mine in history to um, do a one day uh, retreat, like an intro to grad school retreat for all for all graduate students across the social sciences arts and humanities um, and this year we got the grant late so we're doing it in March we're actually doing it next month but we hope this can be something that is happens every September for incoming graduate students across disciplines so in that retreat it's like on a Sunday on campus and what we're doing is we are having sessions on like the what I call "quote unquote" the basics of graduate school, but often it's like so basic that no one ever talks about. It. Like, how do you read? What is reading in grad school? How do you read large amounts of information? How do you read critically? How do you read generously? Um, you know, and, and so we're going to have a session on that. We're going to have a session on writing. What are the different forms of writing you need to do in grad school? Um, what is it? You know, what are what is a seminar paper? What is a conference paper? Um, how do you quote? You know, how do you find text to quote? Um, and you know, and then we're going to have um, a session on professionalization. But we're also having a lunch in the middle and we're having a d- off-campus dinner with graduate students and faculty from across departments. And it sounds like a really simple thing, but graduate students need to meet other graduate students and other faculty in other departments. Um, we tend to think very in very siloed ways about about expertise and kind of oh and I'm an English student so I have these needs but um I'm really excited for this retreat because I think it's a chance to remind students that they're part of a larger community. And again, for your help question, um, maybe there's a history faculty that an English student will meet and be like, this person is really helpful. Um, can you, uh, you know, can, I'm gonna meet with them when I need help. So expanding, the, that my goal is expanding the number of people, number of faculty members whose students feel like they can ask for help. And that is only gonna, it's really just gonna benefit everyone.
1: It's such an important introduction to an on-campus network that students don't know how to do on their own. I would have felt really awkward walking into a different department, into a professor's office who I did not know, introducing myself, telling them what I was interested in, and asking them you know, who they were and if they were interested in meeting me. But when you put together a mixer like this, and that's the point of it, people can get a sense, even if they're introverts like I am, okay, at least I saw this person and I'll get up the guts to talk to them later. And they seem like they're interested in grad students because they showed up at this mixer. That's
0: exactly right. Um, they, they're interested in grad students. And, you know, there's sometimes there's there's lots of things. I tell my students as in English too, when you choose a committee, again, we're a small department and we're a shrinking department. And I think for some people, that's a, a sign of kind of crisis because if you're coming to study medieval medieval literature you you don't you're not going to have three medievalists on your committee but i actually tell students see that as a as a kind of open is an invitation that the you can have someone in your field expert on your committee, but also have someone who you really get along with on your committee. Have someone who's like a lovely person to talk to on your committee. We need to humanize the PhD to make it successful and to revive it. And absolutely what you're saying, I mean a lot of us are introverts. I mean I as well would feel very nervous about what you described, but feeling like there's someone there who is there waiting, you know, wait in a sense waiting and excited to have this conversation with you, it really can open the doors, I think, for Um, for a lot of success. And I just absolutely don't want to separate kind of success in the PhD with like well-being. And I think we do need to think about how those two things are deeply intertwined. We need students to be to be happy and to be enjoying themselves for it to be a successful PhD.
1: It also sounds like you've been doing a lot of thought about the hidden curriculum. You said You talked about things that students are somehow just expected to know because it seems so obvious or it's in the ethos and the students don't know. And thinking back to when you were in grad school and how you figured this out um, and then putting together a real program to say, here's the top five things we think you should know right away. Yeah, I think
0: absolutely. I mean, you realize that, that, you know, students come and this is the great thing about what we can see is a real, you know, the we've made a huge amount of progress as a country on diversifying who comes to the PhD. And I think that's like a fantastic thing. And that's why I mean, when people say like, oh, maybe we shouldn't even have a PhD anymore. Like that's not my approach. I mean, I think that we're getting more and more people have access to the PhD, to an, an English PhD than ever before. But I mean, we need to be attentive to lot, the, lot, the different places that people are coming from. And absolutely, as you say, we just cannot assume that people know um what we mean when we talk about reading you know when we talk about writing a seminar paper and so um and and you know and we do a lot of disservice to like you know potentially like brilliant students who come in and have all of the ideas and completely deserve to be to be there but just have not been given the tools to decipher the hidden curriculum so the more we can do to And it helps everyone. I mean, no one is harmed by like a quick, you know, uh, review on what it means to write a conference paper. Like no one is harmed by that. I mean, I, I could still use it at my stage, having done like a thousand conferences. Um, so I think, you know, and it forces faculty to be more kind of attentive to to our expectations, to articulate our expectations and to remind ourselves uh, why we assign a seminar paper, for instance, or why we assign an oral presentation in class um, to remind ourselves that we are teaching students a certain um, set of skills. And we need to, um, rather than just assume that there's kind of inherent value in in any of this, so I I agree. I think it's really important, um, truly democratizing um, work that it's this kind of, you know, the the just the what seems to be the basics. I think has is going to really serve students well.
1: Thinking back to your interviews with the students, and obviously you need to protect their privacy and the specifics, but. I was stunned by my professor's assumptions about me and the very different reality. They all assumed because I was doing the work and I was doing it well, that I was in better financial shape than I was, that I had more resources than I did. I don't think to this day, any of them know that I didn't have a computer.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's you're absolutely right. We, you know, the graduate school recently put out put out a survey of um, of debt that the students like, you know, a report on the debt the students have. Um, And and it's uh, it's it is it's it's kind of I say shocking. I mean, it shouldn't be shocking for exactly the reasons you say, but um, especially so I think it's a little it's especially tricky with the Ph.D. And maybe this was your experience as well. With the master's degree, I think everyone knows that there's, you know, that a lot of people are paying a lot of money to get a master's um, degree at whatever, you know, wherever especially at private institutions. Um, but because of this language of fully funded that I've referred to several times, I think people don't realize how precarious students in PhD programs are. I think there's a sense that the that the MA is where they pay. Um, and so we, w- of course, worry about master students as well and their financial situations and what they've had to do to kind of collect the the funds for these very expensive master's uh, degree programs and of course the debt they're going to carry afterwards but i think it still is surprising to faculty how much debt and precarity um, faced by by phd students because we do have this sense that we are we are paying them you know and that that is actually means i think And again, this isn't this isn't intended as badly, but sometimes faculty feel like, okay, well, we don't need to worry about the debt or financial situation of Ph.D. students because they are being paid. So I think talking about how much debt Ph.D. students have. you know, recording the, uh, in, you know, the incredible amount of work outside of the PhD that work that students have to do to get by, talking about the work they have to do over the summer. Um, and, and we've been good, my department has been good about really trying to make sure that people get some summer funding and um, the graduate school uh, and the Mandel Center have been, uh, you know, joining forces to to pay dissertation writers. Um, it's not a huge amount, but just something over the summer so that people feel, you know, can, can focus on writing rather than working. But it's, I agree. It's a, it's a real kind of, um, it's like an active, an active ignorance that some faculty have about the financial situation of, of PhD students.
1: And I think there's a desire to look like you have it together, whatever you're doing behind the scenes. If you're, in my case, I was. Wish- sharing books with a student who could afford to buy them and I couldn't, which meant that I could read them when that student wasn't using them, which meant I picked them up at the end of the day, stayed up all night reading them and gave them back uh, on campus in the morning. But to my professors, apparently I seemed okay. And it's very hard for students to open up about these things or to feel like it's not personally our fault. Are there structural things that universities can do to have ways to support things like book costs or food instability? Yeah.
0: um, I think, yes, there are other programs like this. And this came up, um, I mean, obviously, especially during the pandemic where there was like no opportunities for people to do anything. Some students couldn't do research. Um, And so, yeah, there, the, there are, you know, some structures put in place um, around like food insecurity, food pantries and making sure that people are, you know, provided for on the, on the basic level. Um, But But, uh, and yeah, but it's tough with, um, again, with the, um, just the, like the financial situation of all of these institutions, it's just like, there's not, um, you know, there's not a lot of wiggle room for, for, you know, increasing stipends is another major one. Right. I mean, like put, you know, really increasing a stipend costs. I think Brandeis has just increased the stipend costs for next year, which is like the first, I think. Um, you know it's not something that they do every year during the pandemic we each department was given a um, given a choice to put their their program on pause and um, some of the money so English did that and, and then we were able to give kind of extra stipends to some of the current students um, just to support them but um, and which all of which are I think really important extra you know ec- food food insecurity sharing books. I do think though, and I don't know, um you know since you've kind of experienced this, maybe you have different thoughts, but I do think that they're that these are those are small solutions to what is a larger kind of structural problem with um and that's why um I would completely support those initiatives, but I do think it's important to think about you know. I mean, I'm talking about we're talking about insecurity within the five funded years, let alone what happens to you afterwards. So I do think that some of these that some of the bigger problems are like getting students through in five years, let, let, informing them fully about what they're in for when they join the program, perhaps not even calling it fully funded, but calling it a stipended PhD so that people have a realistic sense of what you know, what they're in for. Um, and are these are equally important as also, um, as you say, providing kind of smaller, um, grants for people to, uh, buy books and things like that.
1: Now that you're towards the end of this Mellon program, the funding ends this year, um, how do you see this going forward? So, um, I mean, Mellon's a fascinating, um,
0: organization and they have spent, um, a lot of money over the last couple of decades in try, in these projects for shortening the PhD, um, or short, you know increasing time to degree, decreasing time to degree. Sorry, um, and um, you know and incentivizing students to finish, and then now you know in the, incentivizing students to diverse careers. They're not funding these kind of projects before, um, and I mean any longer. Um, as, as you know, the, the funding priorities of the Mellon Foundation have changed. Um, but I think it's a, I don't see that. I mean, I think it's a powerful reminder for us to now kind of shoulder some of that that, that work ourselves within, within institutions and within departments. So to say, okay, now we've seen what something, a program like the Connected PhD can do. Maybe other departments at Brandeis and across the country should start funding internships in the same way that we, you know, we did in English and that Connected PhD encouraged us to do. Like it's a great way for students to get certain skills. We can do that within our departments. Um, it is possible. Um, and so that's, you know, one thing thinking about like I said, the connected PhD also incentivized faculty to think more actively about Reforms within their programs, and I think that has worked. I think there's several departments just around Brandeis, but I know around the country, there are many, um, not all, but many who are who have faculty members who are saying, "Okay, let me take on this project," um, of you know, of thinking about what we could do better. As a department, in and to make our program better for students, so I think um, that is going to be, you know, that some that yes, in a sense, some of the burden has passed onto us as faculty. But I also see it as an exciting way for faculty um, within departments to think more actively about what they can do for their students, and that um, I hope that work continues. Uh, But it's been a, you know, the the like I said, the we've had a huge shift in, in the English department at Brandeis in ways that I am optimistic will have tangible
1: benefits. And that you're optimistic are scalable at any school. Sorry. And that you're optimistic are scalable at any school that might be listening.
0: Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I have to say, like, uh, the credit, the original, um, the original impetus for me to kind of embark on this in my department was back in 2019, the MLA held a what they called, I think, the Summit of Summit for Higher Education. It was supposed to be in person and then it moved online with the pandemic. But um, it was a uh, it was a, a fascinating conversation among kind of people who had. Instituted similar reforms of what I'm talking about at different universities, big universities, small universities, public, private, um, and hearing them talk, I was like amazed by what people had already done. And I was, and and as, as you say, scalable. I mean, I immediately thought, like, what could we do at Brandeis? There's no one size fits all solution for every department, every university, but. I mean, I took like some of the best ideas that I got from that um, and and kind of brought them to my department. And we spent a good two years really kind of hammering them out, um, not without some conflict, but I think to a good to a good solution. So I think pro- people like the M- groups like the MLA, the AHA, the um, Anthropological Association, these um Groups have a real important role to play. They might not be able to offer lots of funding, but they certainly can be places where we have these conversations and think exactly about the scalability of these ideas. You know, what, what, are, another, what are other departments doing and what can we do um, inspired by that? What, what is feasible for our department, our size, our needs, our students?
1: To collectively bring about structural change. Yeah, to
0: collectively bring about structural change and um, structural change and culture change. I think those would be equally important. The structural change is like the actual kind of mechanics of the, you know, changing structures within the curriculum to to allow students to succeed, the culture change is, um, you know, the different way that we see the PhD. Not to lament that the PhD isn't the thing it was before, but to think in optimistic and forward-thinking ways about what the PhD could be in this particular moment, um, and to get rid of some of these biases about <clears throat> career diversity and about other things that um, that you know was, was part of the terrain earlier. Okay.
1: My hope is that it ultimately grows what a PhD can be and how it can be used. So there'll be more people encouraged to get their PhD. I agree with that completely.
0: I think think this is a chance for potential growth um, as we think about the PhD. As we think in this way, the PhD will start to serve and serve better more and more students, students coming from different contexts, different undergraduate institutions, different life contexts, different economic contexts. Um, As we start to, you know, expand our different international contexts, we start to think more broadly about what the PhD can be. So I don't think at all it's a weakening or lessening of the PhD. I think it's a growing of the PhD precisely, as you say, to accommodate more and different kinds of students. And that's what, that's what we want. We want more students to be able to, um, partake in what can be, if it's done well, a really exciting, you know, number of years, five years, six years, um, that that um you know i feel so lucky to have experienced myself and i feel lucky to support students who do it but we have to do it responsibly and we have to do it well and then i think it could be amazing
1: and the culture change increases students confidence not only in their own worth in the department but in the skills they're going to use once they graduate Absolutely. And that confidence. And like I said, I mean, that's the exact opposite of the kind of shame
0: and self-doubt that that was so it's kind of it's almost so much a part of the PhD that it's like a joke, you know, that like, oh, I'm a, I'm a PhD student. I must have this shame and self-doubt. And that's terrible. How can we ethically support an institution that is, that is um, making students feel that way? Confidence is everything. As you said, it'll make the PhD better. It'll make students feel better when they graduate. It'll make them feel better about the institutions and the departments they graduated from. And it'll make them do better on the workforce. And again, in any kind of job, um, whether, you know, in the university adjacent, to the university or completely separate from the university, that kind of confidence will bring um, much more success. Um, and that's good for everyone.
1: What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? I hope this episode sparks
0: people thinking that reform in their departments, faculty worried that reform in their departments is not possible. Um, and the the importance of um, you know, having these conversations in departments, even if sometimes they're uncomfortable, um, really thinking. Deeply, I would encourage faculty to think deeply about what a student-centered PhD would look like. Um, I hope there's agreement that we need a student-centered PhD, um, but if there's not really thinking about the privilege that faculty have, uh, myself included, um, and the, the way that the PhD has largely been structured to support that privilege, um, and to really think of what it would look like to think about the main users or um, of the PhD as the students themselves. Um, And I think, you know, I think people, I hope that this inspires people to think optimistically about the PhD of the future um, and what it could be rather than kind of what we sometimes tend to do, which is lament the kind of loss of the PhD of the past.
1: Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Oka Anjaria, and talking to us about the future of a more connected PhD. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you're listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.